Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I am your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City, where it's snowing rather heavily. Um, I it, it Coming from a place where it snows even more than that. Typically, uh, we have Steve Walt of Harvard's Kennedy School up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, or one of those kind of places. How are you doing, Steve? Very well. Thank you, David. Has the snow started there? Not here. Not We've there. We've got some leftover from the last storm, but nothing yet. And down in our nation's capital, we've got Rosa Brooks, in case you missed it on the last episode, or the last one I was here for. She's the author of Tangled up in blue, um, uh, which is uh, doing extremely well. And you may have seen her on many different kinds of media um, talking about her new book. Hi, Rosa. How are you? Hi, David. I'm very well. Um, Yes. And everybody should buy it for their friends, relatives and the bottom of their bird cages. Doesn't matter what. Just buy it. Just just buy it. Yeah. We're behind that. And then you can hear um, the gentle and uplifting laugh of Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you today, Corey? I am freezing cold, David, because I have just come home to Washington, D.C. from my native land in California, and it's doggone freezing here. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's, you know, the Biden administration. And undoubtedly, <laughs> um, as we blame those things, it and wasn't we have with freezing for election day. <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. Uh, and we have with us the new fledgling White House correspondent of the New York Times, an aspiring <laughs> young cub reporter, David Sanger, um, somehow has done something to uh, uh, the, the management of the New York Times, and they've reassigned him back to the White House. Uh, maybe it's because the Biden White House will be soothing, David, and they think for a guy of your years, it'll be a, a you know a suitable resting place. <laughs> Something like that. I I thought I noticed a disturbance in the atmosphere here, but it turns out it was just Corey rearriving <laughs> from California. <laughs> yes, I'm I'm going back to a job that I last had 14 years ago um, when I covered sort of the end of the Clinton administration. That was really pretty, uh, and through two wars in the uh, Bush administration um, for six years, and I've gone off and um, done many other things uh, along the way. And they decided that I should really go back to um, the White House for a little bit uh, to get going on the uh, the Biden foreign policy. And I just realized that my colleagues who are terrific and much better at the job than I ever was when I did it, none of them had been at the New York Times when I last left this job, 
which tells you something about either their ability to bring in new talent or their ability to retread old talent. I don't know what that is. <laughs> well, well, congratulations to you. It's better. It's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for America to have you there. Um, before we get into the meat of this, I do want to also note, um, because I was I missed a week last week because I don't know, I was at some medical thing. Um, nothing bad, but it was like some doctor's appointment. But um, Corey has been a sh appointed to the Base Renaming Commission. Um, and I want to congratulate you, Corey, on that. Um, Thank you, David. It's going to be a lot of fun to strip traders' names off of federal facilities and replace them with some of the many thousands of Americans from whom all of us can draw inspiration. Well, I think oh, Corey. Yes, Rosa, <laughs> go ahead. Are you I, volunteering? That's it. No, I'm just saying go, Corey. Because oh, that's no. fantastic. And and I'm our listeners should know that Corey's already agreed that there will be a Fort Rothkopf. But other than that, <laughs> I thought that was the renamed Fort Bragg. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and well, also, sure. Corey, can you commit right now to naming like a missile silo in the Dakotas yes. after Rosa because yes. of her deep fascination with them? <laughs> well played david very yes, well played well then i'm sure that in the entire deep state will well up on that so here we are david's writing about foreign policy that's what we talk about here and national security policy and there i was flipping through former employer foreign policy and there was an article by stephen wald um, about the biden foreign policy team and it began with the one kind of assertion that was guaranteed to win the approval of, of David, Rosa, and Corey, because it said something like, Rothkopf thinks these guys are good. I'm not so sure. <laughs> and, and I was like, hmm. And then, you know, I thought, well, you know, it's, it's one of those cases where I'm now I'm, I'm, I'm described as being on the liberal too easy on the White House side of the thing. And it's taken a long time. It's taken me like many years to get to that point. But David, wasn't wanted, that article dated 1980? <laughs> yeah. but, I, but, I to, but I wanted to thank you, Stephen, for that. And I thought maybe we could start with you laying out your premise and then we could talk about it. Yeah, the basic argument is that when the Biden team began to get rolled out, there was a, a tremendous amount of quelling from people uh, basically, you know, comparing them to their predecessors and suggesting, you know, thank God we've got the grownups back. We've got mature people. We've got, I think your phrase was that they are an all-star list and that they're picking the A-team. I remember my first reaction when I kept hearing this was that this is not doing the Biden team a service, right? Because and essentially it's over-promising. It's raising expectations. And if I were Biden and Sullivan and uh, Blinken, I would want some expectations lowered a little bit because uh, no foreign policy team, no matter how good, is going to achieve um, everything uh, that they would like to. I mean, the second issue here is that um, there are some worrisome features of this team. And I think the big question will be how much they learned from the last time uh, they were in power uh, under the, Ob under the uh, Obama administration, which I think ended up with at best a mixed foreign policy record. And if they sort of go back and try and replay that uh, songbook again, they're going to end up with some of the same uh, same results, and there are some worrisome indications. Uh, you know, Jake Sullivan wrote a piece in the Atlantic a couple of years ago, which really was sort of an anthem to American exceptionalism uh, that I think is a little bit tired at this point. 
Joe Biden, when he was writing in Foreign Affairs last year, was saying, you know, not only is America going to be back at the table, which is a good thing, but the, you know, America is going to be at the head of the table, which may not always be necessary and not necessarily what even some of our allies want uh, at this point. So my concern is, again, they have some of uh, maybe uh, inappropriate instincts and they're not going to be as good as we would all like them to be, even though I think they are substantially better, obviously, than the uh, than their predecessors. And in that sense, they are lucky. Excellent. That's a that's a that's a good place to begin. One of the reasons I thought it was good to talk about all this and I'd encourage everybody else to fold this in is last week we had a, a, a lot of activity on the foreign policy front. It included on Friday. Um, uh, Biden meeting with the G7 uh, virtually and talking about uh, plugging back into the WHO and giving some money to funding for uh, COVID vaccine for countries that need it. Uh, we went back into the Paris Accord on Friday. On uh, Friday, we all the uh, Biden also spoke to the Munich Security Conference virtually, saying America is back, being tough on Russia, talking about you know, uh, some of the future challenges that we had. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, Secretary uh, Blinken was quite active also throughout the week. So there's, a, there's actually a lot to talk about here. Um, uh, the only thing I would caution everybody is because there's four of us, or four of you guys talking on the, on the panel. If we keep the, com the comments a little shorter each time, it'll enable us to get around the group more often. Let me start with you, Rosa. What was the actual question in there, David? Oh, and I didn't have time for a question because there's not. Oh, the, question is, question, the question is react to react. To, it's the to usual Rothkopf question, which is, what do you think? Okay, okay, react to what Steve said. Okay, Steve, I will now react to you. Um, right. Well, I, I, I think, first of all, obviously, it's early days. Uh, I think you're right to be concerned about overpromising, but I also think that a lot of the writing we saw pre-election as well as some of the speech making immediately post-election. But you know, the pre-election stuff was people were campaigning. Um, and some of the post-election stuff was trying to send signals to reassure Americans and in some cases allies that everything is okay. So I don't actually, for better or for worse, I don't know that all of that necessarily tells us a whole lot about what's really going to happen. You know, obviously what's been happening so far in part is grabbing the low hanging fruit um, you know, rejoining Paris Accord, you know, funding for WHO and COVID, uh, you know, saying all the right things, just kind of trying to undo some of the most egregiously obvious and easy to undo damage from Trump. I do think you're, you're absolutely right, though, that the hard part starts now, more or less, you know, when we're out of low hanging fruit. And now uh, I don't know what metaphor to use for things like Iran. You know, now we're at the like the low hanging hand grenades. Um, uh, or something like that, right? <laughs> you know, the easy stuff is done. Um, everything now is going to be the hard stuff, uh, whether it's Iran or Afghanistan or North Korea, or even just persuading the rest of the world uh, that they can take us seriously, much less look to us as a leader. Um, and I, you know, I, I think we just don't know whether this group of people will turn out to be um, the zombie blob as the headline in, in your foreign policy piece in December put it, or whether they will have learned from experience. And, you know, there are, there are people in the administration who, of whom I think the world and there are people, you know, not so much. So we're just going to, jury's still out. Um, okay. In that case, they're uh, like every administration. Yep. 
No, 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 no doubt about that. Um, Corey. Rosa is exactly right. And I can't improve upon it. All I will just say is I think um, Steve is imputing more meaning to the rhetoric that simply says, we're not going to be jerks. We hear you. D- David, what's, what's, what's your reaction to this besides jumping immediately on the bandwagon with anything that says I was wrong? It, no, um, <laughs> I, I thought I'd be positive today and say that oh. Walt was right, despite, you oh, know, that's good. That's yeah, good. right. <laughs> so, um, no, was the date and time. <laughs> so, um, this has been the month of the undoing, and it has been the month of the low hanging fruit. We forget that everybody else gets a vote in here, right? The North Koreans get a vote about whether or not a new approach, once we hear one, actually results in them giving up any weapons. I would bet no. The Iranians get a vote, and that's pretty mixed. We saw just on Sunday night that they announced that they are going to continue to restrict or they're going to go ahead with restricting inspections, but they left a lot of room open for some diplomacy. You could do the same with uh, Russia, where the biggest decision is going to be how he, how Biden uh, responds to solar winds, and they've been talking pretty tough uh, on that and on Navalny, and China is going to be the most complex. So what struck me coming out of the Munich Security Conference was that while there was the opening lines of applause that Biden had rejoined all of these organizations, you heard a few interesting notes of dissent there, which we highlighted in our in our coverage, which uh, on Friday night and Saturday, you had Macron saying, you know, you never know who could get elected after Joe Biden. So we can't be as dependent on um, American uh, defenses as we used to be. That's why we need a sovereign approach to all of this. And, that, you know, he's been talking about sort of a, a European separated Uh, military that is not dependent on NATO. You heard Angela Merkel, who has nothing to lose because she'll be gone uh, within a year, saying, we're delighted to have you back, America, but just know we're not going to agree on everything, starting with Russia and China. So those indications would suggest that uh, the administration is going to have to uh, evolve considerably. And I think you have seen two areas where they've already learned some lessons. The tone is much tougher on Russia than it was during Obama's time and certainly during Trump's time. And uh, on Iran, you keep hearing Secretary of State Blinken say that the next agreement has to be longer and stronger, which tells you that just re-signing the old agreement he recognizes is a political non-starter. I don't know whether any of these will turn into anything, but I note that those are differences from the Obama administration. Okay, so let's circle back to Steve. And I've got a couple of other questions for the group as we sort of dissect this a little bit. Um, But Steve, I think one of the things that differentiates this group from the, or or this team from the Obama team is the captain. Because the captain and the Obama team, uh, whatever you may think of Barack Obama and Barack Obama's foreign policy, didn't know that much about foreign policy when he came into office. And so the first couple of years of Obama, just like the first couple of years of Bush, just like the first couple of years of Clinton, were learning curve years. There is no learning. You know, Joe Biden has more foreign policy experience at a high level than any U.S. president in history. 
Um, I wouldn't go quite that far, David. Well, who has more? Because <laughs> I've because I've thought it through. You know, you might you might make us an argument for Eisenhower, but but Bush Bush Bush, Bush no, not as much because he hadn't been Herbert Hoover in the with Senate all of as, his humanitarian work. Well, um, Joe but Joe Biden went into the Senate in 1972, just and started dealing with foreign policy issues almost from the get go. So as if it's very very nearly. It's 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 forty eight years of, of foreign policy experience, but in any event, let's just leave that aside, uh, and let's not compare him to Herbert Hoover. He's 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 got more um, foreign policy uh, chops uh, than than Obama did. How big a difference do you think that's going to make? I think it makes a difference, uh, but hey, you know, it may be it may not be such a good thing, right? This is a guy whose entire experience in foreign policy up until becoming president was an America that was, in fact, leading the so-called free world. It was uh, initially Cold War and then the unipolar era. And so if he sort of falls back on a set of instincts that, you know, the United States is, in fact, the world's natural leader and all the world's democracies will fall in line uh, once we've pointed a clear direction, uh, you know, that's not necessarily the insight that's going to get him through the next uh, the next few years. Um, I thought David made a number of, uh, David Sanger made a number of interesting points that, you know, the, the real question is what sorts of decisions will Biden make when he's faced uh, with real choices? How tough to be with China on trade issues? Um, what's he going to do about Afghanistan? There's a May 1 deadline where the Trump administration said they were going to withdraw the troops. Uh, the Afghanistan study group has just issued a report saying, no, we should now try to extend that deadline. And even if the Taliban won't agree, we should stay beyond there. That's ultimately going to be a decision that Biden has to make. And I'm not sure that the 35 years of experience or the 40 years or the 50 years uh, tells us what choice he's ultimately going to make or whether or not that's going to be the, the right one. And you can multiply this on. I think the Iran question is a really vexing one uh, because they may want to get a longer and tougher agreement. Uh, but first, they've got to make sure that the Iranians are at least willing to stop doing what they're doing now. And there's this uh, kind of Alphonse Gaston routine going with each side wanting the other to move first uh, with an Iranian election coming up this summer. Uh, so you can see a lot of different ways in which uh, a very wise, experienced, knowledgeable president who knows a lot about foreign affairs could get a bunch of this right. But you can also see how he could get a lot of those things wrong and have all of them deteriorating uh, you know, on his watch six months from now. Okay, so let me try another um, angle on all of this, Rosa. Um, all of the people that are in the senior positions in this administration lived through the ups and the downs of the Obama administration, uh, most of them. Uh, they've made the same mistakes. Some of them were critical of those mistakes publicly. Um, do you think that that helps this team? And well, let me leave it at that. Do you think that helps this team? I sure hope so. I, I almost think that the most important criteria for dealing with US foreign policy at this moment is some humility. Um, and some of the folks who've gone in, I think, hopefully have that from some less than successful adventures during the Obama administration. You know, I, I, I actually have come to have more sympathy for bad foreign policy decisions because I think it is almost impossible to be good at foreign policy as opposed to lucky. 
because it's it's so damn complicated and it's getting worse and all of the all the all the issues that Steve talked about. It's just it's not obvious that there's a right answer. You know, it really isn't. Um, there are a variety of answers, each of which has problems. We don't quite know, and we may not know until we try something, you know, which works, which is totally catastrophic. I mean, I think we can clearly distinguish between negligent, willfully destructive bad foreign policy, e.g. Donald Trump, uh, and uh, capable, thoughtful, and bad foreign policy, e.g. some of the time Obama. Um, but part of the problem is, is that we just aren't very good at it. Nobody's very good at it because it's impossible to be very good at it. It's an incredibly complex system and none of us have the ability to, to figure out, you know, what's, what are going to be the second, third, fourth, fifth order consequences of this or that decision. That's not to say that there aren't manifestly stupider things to do and manifestly less stupid things to do. There are, but I think that the problems that Biden is going to face right now are ones that you know, they're not, they don't tend, you know, again, they're not the low hanging fruit. There's no manifestly obvious thing to do. Um, he's not going to do the manifestly stupid stuff, but there's a big space in between. And probably the best quality to have in there is, is humility. Um, first of all, I heartily endorse that statement. I think that, that the way you described foreign policy, how we do it, how it gets done and how one should measure it is exactly right. Corey, um, you know, we've been talking about this for the past couple of weeks. We now have some data, some data on Iran, some data on China, some data on Russia, some data on dealing with allies, some data on immigration policy, some data on uh, other ways of undoing Trump policy. Have you seen any moves by the by the Biden team that worry you? Um, no. In fact, uh Several of the things I had been concerned that the Biden administration would continue from the Trump administration, I think there are heartening early signs um, of, that they are not. So first on Afghanistan, right? I thought President Trump's reckless rush to zero in Afghanistan, leaving both Afghans and NATO allies holding the bag was a huge gift to President Biden, because that's basically what Biden has always advocated for in all those years that you give him so much credit for being the most qualified um, uh, foreign policy expert to ascend to the presidency. I'm not manufacturing that. That's just a thing, you know, I mean, what he's done. I would so love to litigate that with at least the six past secretaries of state who've gone on to be elected president that, but I won't, David, I will resist the temptation because you asked me to. So on Afghanistan, I mean, I think the sounds coming out of the administration have been, we're going to review it. We should have a conditions-based exit strategy, not a time-based exit strategy. Um, And uh, we need to sink our way through this. That's actually a terrific um, approach to the policy, whatever they eventually decide. And that makes me more hopeful. I think that's a smarter position than Biden was in on the campaign trail. And on trade policy, I thought the Secretary of the Treasury arguing, we're going to leave tariffs on China for the moment, even though um, you know her, her record as a public intellectual uh, is not in favor of those kinds of tariffs but they're looking to leverage 
broader issues with China. And that strikes me as really smart. And so uh, I think they're doing better than their campaign trail performance. And that's probably because for because almost all of the people President Biden has appointed are calm, competent, talented people who understand that the world has changed since the Obama administration and aren't going to dog, dogmatically or in a doctrinaire way uh, continue policies that don't marry our times. Interesting. We're not going to litigate the six presidents who <laughs> arrived at that from being secretary of state the but... last of those because the last of those was james you k can. polk um and and and, and, and bonus also, points for nerdiness david thank you and well i remember when hillary was about to be elected somebody pointed out that the last of them was james k polk all of and all of them were secretaries of state of country that were was roughly in, in you know as important as say I don't know. Portugal? Anyway. Um, <laughs> um, uh, David, and then this is going to carry over back to you, uh, Steve. Picking up on your earlier point about what the world demands of us, you know, another thing that, that I've been thinking is that the, 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 you know, Biden wants to focus on for domestic policy issues for a lot of reasons, good reasons. Um, but the world may not let him do that. And in fact, there are a number of issues that look like they're going to sort of come to a head during the Biden presidency that are going to make him a consequential foreign policy president, whether he wants to be or not. You mentioned Iran, uh, the future of NATO and NATO as it plans to 2030, the future of the U.S. nuclear arsenal and what do we do about the modernization of the U.S. nuclear arsenal, uh, shaping U.S. policy towards the Indo-Pacific and specifically to China. The Defense Department has just launched a, a review of that um, and and so forth. And so, you know, it seems to me that, you know, the world is going to say, well, you know, I, I know you've got these big things to deal with and, and recovering, by the way, from the post-COVID era. And, you know, I think we too easily dismiss the fact that 500,000 Americans have died and that we've never gone through anything quite like the past year, um, which has international implications. So what do you think? It, you know, it, is, is he going to be forced to be an important foreign policy president, whether he wants to be or not? Well, first, on the previous point that was made, David, I want to say that I thought your podcast with Polk was one of the best that we'd had. And the <laughs> fact that you did it over in completely over telegraph, you know, was a really was a really notable achievement. Now, yeah, well, we spotted him early. Yeah. <laughs> okay. um, uh, second, uh, I would say that um, in the end, my guess is that he, on the foreign policy front, he will be judged more by how he handles China than almost anything else. You know, the Iran nuclear arrangement's going to happen or not. Uh, but assuming that we don't have a nuclear exchange with Iran or North Korea or anyone else, we have wasted so many years with defense policies and um, procurement policies and competitiveness policies while the Chinese have feasted on the fact that our attention has been elsewhere, whether it's been on impeaching Donald Trump or wars in the Middle East and so forth, that we're really sort of running out of runway here. 
And my guess is that um, this will be what he gets judged on the most. It may require, you know, if he only has one term, he may not have time to do very much uh, out of all of this. Um, but when you go back and you look at the reading, at the writings of um, some of his top aides, it sort of shines through that, you know, they've got issues that are on the two, three, four year scale, which I would put Iran and North Korea and others uh, on, and certainly Afghanistan. Um, but that the China thing, you, you have to get right for, for the next two generations. And that's very difficult in our system. The Afghanistan decision is going to be interesting mostly for how it comports with what he said prior to this and the positions he took in the Obama administration. And we wrote a fairly lengthy piece, it was in the Times last week, about how he is somewhat haunted by um, the Vietnam uh, image there, that if we leave and Kabul falls, that he'll be remembered for that. But I don't think anybody I've run into in this administration believes that when you go back to Afghanistan 20 years from now, you're going to see something really notable from the American uh, 20 years there. Um, so um, I think it's China. Okay. Um, Steve, it's the same question. You know, what is the world going to demand of him? If you were advising him right now and you were to say, look, you've got to focus on one thing in foreign policy as a legacy issue, what do you think it would be? Uh, well, I agree with David that um, that China is going to be the thing that gets remembered by the historians. Um, I guess I'd say several things, and I'll, I'll be put myself in the uh, rare position of saying, you know, I can look at this administration so far and say, you know, gee, maybe they're actually going to get the big things right. I mean, what do you see so far? It sort of looks to me like they want to diminish the Middle East in terms of the amount of bandwidth it takes up. They don't want to be as close to Saudi Arabia. They aren't going to try and do, uh, you know, a big push for Middle East peace. Uh, I think they would like to get out of Afghanistan, and I hope they do, because it's an enormous distraction uh, uh, from the main uh, problem. So, you know, I see them wanting to diminish the American role in the Middle East, focus much more heavily on Asia, much more heavily on solidifying those alliance relationships, come up with a combination of cooperation uh, with China on issues like climate, uh, with competition everywhere else. And then finally, in terms of Europe, you know, it's sort of a uh, situation normal. We're friends again, status quo. Oh, and by the way, we're going to be busy in Asia. So we need you folks to spay, uh, to take more responsibility from your own security. Uh, I think you can see the outlines of that uh, in the sort of big picture of the Biden foreign policy. And given that that's what I've been arguing the United States should do for the last five years or so, I'm delighted. Uh, I'll be uh, pleasantly surprised if I turn out to be right here. Well, that must happen to you more frequently than it does to some of us. But I, 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 uh, I think those things are all good signs. Rosa, one thing that Steve did not mention this time, although he mentioned it a little earlier, um, is something that I think is a bigger issue in the world maybe than it is for us. Um, and that is that it looks like the Biden administration is trying to step away from American exceptionalism. When I read the body language and the, and the words of Biden in Munich, talking about partnership, talking about not dictating outcomes, talking about um, you know, things to, to, to work together on, when I've seen the, the, the other things the administration has done, it sure has looked like a step back from the 
uh, sort of aggressive unilateralism of the early Bush administration and aggressive and a step back from, frankly, Obama's rhetoric on exceptionalism, which I thought was a little defensive and, you know, Trump's rhetoric, which is kind of, nar you know, national narcissism, where he just simply, you know, thought the world revolved around him. What do you, what do you think the future of American exceptionalism is under Biden? Well, I'm I'm less persuaded that they're stepping away from it. I you know I do think that they are very very conscious of the need to not be Trump and not be jerks and not act like they assume that we can just go back to pre-Trump with without a any any transition period whatsoever. You know that I think they're absolutely aware of. Um, they get that. You know we can't just say let's just pretend that never happened. Um, but I, I think that they, I think that they are still American exceptionalists, um, and I think that's not going to change soon, um, at least. I, I think when you look at declining empires as we are, uh, it takes a while for empires to figure out how steeply they're declining, and they carry on acting as though they're not declining for some time. Um, so I, I, you know. And I don't think there's anything completely inevitable about it. Um, maybe, maybe things will change, but, but my guess is that we will continue. It, it will be very, very hard for this generation of leaders who stepped into senior positions to really believe in their bones that we aren't the leader of the free world, uh, even though they may, they may make polite noises of, you know, no after you, no after you for a while. Corey, um, one of the things that strikes me as a bit of a warning sign um, uh, is is one where I think you will almost certainly disagree with me. And that is, I, I, I think uh, that the administration has made multiple noises like our level of defense spending is just fine. And, you know, if I were going to write a critique of American national security policy for the past number of years, uh, I think for, in terms of American national needs and in terms of investing in American strength, we've spent too much on defense. What's your sense of this sort of seeming desire to cleave to the status quo? I, as you rightly suspected, David, I don't actually agree that spending 4% of GDP on defense, uh, given the circumstances the United States is looking at in the world, I don't think 4% of GDP is excessive. But I do agree with you that we have underinvested in other really important tools of American power, not least um, the sources are, of our domestic vibrancy, like, you know, infrastructure that can support continued economic growth or diplomacy uh, as the leading edge of our engagement with the world. Uh, so, so. I'd love to see lots bigger investments um, for those and other purposes, but I don't think you need to cut defense spending to do that, especially since the United States can miraculously, because there aren't stronger alternative holding currencies in the international order and interest rates are magically flat and low, um, there's almost no penalty for deficit spending at the moment. And someday there will be, but at the moment there isn't. And that offers us all sorts of advantages, um, which I think 
means that the Biden administration is probably not going to substantially cut defense um, and increase spending on a whole bunch of other things. Uh, and the reason I think they're not going to cut defense is partly because most of the people working on defense policy and even national security policy more broadly in the Biden administration, again, are calm, competent, sensi sensible people who can see the military challenges that undergird the importance of our position in Asia, but also because I think they don't actually care enough about defense policy to want to expend the amount of agony and effort that it would take to change, uh, to substantially cut defense spending and get that legislation through Congress. Because of course, Congress really makes defense policy, the administration doesn't. And, and I don't think, I mean, I, I think they're just not gonna wanna have that fight unless they really have to make trade-offs between defense spending and other stuff, which I don't think they have to do. Yeah, well, that's a, no, it's an excellent point. And, and frankly, if we treated investment spending differently from operating spending, as most companies do, we would be in a different place with our budget anyway, as if we invested, say, in infrastructure. David, I want to go real, real inside baseball with you in the we have a couple minutes here. Um, uh, when you first started covering the White House during the Lincoln administration, you could just sort of walk in the front door. There were like two presidential secretaries. You could say hello. People from the street were wandering in and out. John Hay was always very nice to us. John Hay was, yeah, no, he was a very, I remember the two of you guys were close, but the, <laughs> that, 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 you know, as a, was a simpler time. We now, you know, we've gone through several different kinds of White Houses and several different kinds of models, but this White House seems to be continuing in, at least to some, to, to, to some ways of looking at things, the idea of concentrating power in the White House. Um, the, the membership of the NSC has gotten larger and you've got USAID in the NSC and you've got, um, you know, you've got, you know, John Kerry's little enterprise there and you've got, you've got a lot of people sort of joining in this discussion. The science and technology advisors on the cabinet. There's, 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 there's sort of more people around the main table. In the time that you've sort of been there, um, and, and, and yet, by the way, it's been extremely high functioning and the White House chief of staff deserves huge credit for appointments and getting things done and getting them done on time and not making a lot of gaffes and so forth. So do, do you know, what's, what's, what's your outlook for how this White House functions? Um, before I answer that, David, let me just throw in uh, one paragraph of reaction on what Corey and others were saying. I think the question of what the defense spending level is, is the wrong question. I think the right question here is, are we spending on the systems we're going to need for the next 20 years? And, you know, that seems pretty clear to me that that means you kill off uh, old defense systems that were designed in the Vietnam War, and you invest in space and cyber and those things that um, you're worried about competing with China on. It goes back to getting the China right uh, answer. And um, Washington is so obsessed with the level that they're not sort of looking at new technologies that aren't especially expensive compared to many other things we do 
but that we are underinvesting in dramatically. And, and that's where I think they got to handle that. On the White House, usually you get the um, uh, impression that, you know, when Democrats come in, that, you know, they're going to let all these, uh, you know, mainstream reporters that they all know, you know, in the door and so forth. That's not usually the way it happens. The Obama White House, you'll remember, was pretty closed and contained. This White House, it's a little bit early to tell. The, um, the good news has been that whenever they're making a major policy announcement, they do something that the Trump administration gave up doing, which is they put reporters on the phone, usually on background with some of the people who made the decision, and they explain their rationale. I realize this sounds very old school, uh, but uh, it's, uh, it's been the one refreshing uh, thing there. That said, uh, my guess is that they are probably going to be as, about as controlled on um, discussing the inner decision making as the Obama folks were. One of the great things about uh, covering the Trump White House was that it all revolved around the impulses and mood of one person when they woke up and who would issue a tweet that the entire world would see. And then you'd go back and you'd figure out how the policy process was adjusted to match up with the tweet. Here, you're actually seeing a much more traditional, controlled, logical system where they actually work their way up to a decision and then present it to the president. And the interesting question is going to be, how much of that inner working do we end up getting to see? Because that's how you understand the dynamics that went into a decision. Excellent. This has been a great discussion. Really informative. You are four of the smartest people I know, which is why we keep coming back to you. Everybody should follow what Steve is writing. He writes regularly for foreign policy um, and uh, elsewhere. And of course, Rosa's book, I don't remember the name. Tangled <laughs> up in blue. What, what was that again? Tangled up in blue. Tangled up in blue. Tangled up, yeah, tangled up in blue. That was, that was it. You should immediately buy Rosa's book. And if you don't have a birdcage to put her book in, buy a bird. Then buy the book. Yes. Um, the bird will like the book. The bird the will love books. The bird will like the book. And uh, and read it at Fort Shockey. Yeah, read it at Fort Shockey. <laughs> I, hope, I hope that is the byproduct of this, a fort in Northern California you can call your own. Um, and or, you know, or Fort Tiara of Optimism, as we like to think of it. Um, and of course, follow the cub reporter on the White House beat for the New York Times. <laughs> He's a good guy and he deserves your support. In the meantime, everybody, follow what we're doing at the DSRnetwork.com. We've got lots and lots of shows this week, including David, a show you might be interested in on how to cover the Biden White House with <laughs> Natasha Bertrand and Jay Rosen, a NYU journalism professor, so that you might be interested. And uh, we've got a lot of other interesting things coming. So go to the go to the website, find out what it is. And if you want to join in and become a member, because we're offering now a whole bunch of new membership benefits that only members get including a weekly podcast called Deep Thoughts and including the ability to join in those expert conversations and actually pose questions. So become a member and stay healthy, stay warm, and we'll see you all again very soon. And thank you, Steve. Thank you, Rosa. Thank you, Corey. And thank you, David. <laughs>